Kia ora. I'm Jason Naylor, and you're listening to Breaking Out the Podcast. This is episode 11. Hey, I've got a favour to ask. If you love this podcast, if you've listened to at least a couple of episodes and you think you might hang in there, why don't you jump onto iTunes and give me a review? Leave me a five-star review. You don't need to say anything if you don't want, but at least get a review. I don't actually think I've got any reviews at the stage, and it'd be really nice to just see what happens if I get a couple. So do me a favour, jump on iTunes, give me a five-star review. If you don't want to give me a five-star review, why don't you at least tell me what you think I could do better? That'd be cool. Today, as I record this intro and outro and pull this podcast together, it's the 13th of Feb. The 13th of Feb is an important date for today's guest. It's the 10-year anniversary of the date that he unveiled a sculpture that turned out to be a life-changing piece of art for him. This was all a bit of a coincidence for me. I didn't actually realise this was happening and I was recording this so close to this date. But sometimes beautiful things like this happen in the world. I liken this to serendipity and I think I'm not going to give too much away. I think you should just jump in and start listening to this interview. So here we are, sculptor Max Pate. All right, welcome to the Breaking Out Podcast. I'm sitting here today in Miramar, right next to various Weta Workshop Studios, with a gentleman by the name of Max Pate. How are you, Max? I'm very well, thanks. Yeah, hey, thanks for coming here. along. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for jumping in the combi with me today. I've just had a little tour of your workshop. Super, super excited. I'm a little bit of a um, woodworking geek myself, so whenever I see any any kind of tools like that, even though I know you're probably working with other materials, I get a little bit excited. <laughs> yeah. You've pretty much got what I would consider the dream workspace in there. Oh, yeah. Cool. How, how do you love it? Is it good? Yeah, it's been great. I only ever intended to be here for six months in this particular space, but I'm now into my third year. Right. Uh, and it's just growing and growing all the time. Fantastic, yeah. fantastic. So let's back up a little bit here. We've got a really, really important um, conversation I want to have about a piece of art that Max made. And if we go back a little bit further in time, he's got a history with Weta, Weta Workshop. Yeah, Weta Workshop. Weta Workshop. But I'm actually going to wind back the clock a little bit more and talk about your background and your training. For sure. Because you told me just before we started this interview that you were about to kick off a conversation about art school in London. Yeah. And I think what we'll do is we'll talk about that and then we'll get into the really cool stuff later on. Okay. Um, yeah, so what I was saying, we I studied at Wimbledon Art School in South London, which at the time, and I think still probably is regarded as one of the best art schools in the country. Uh, I went there to study under a guy by the name of Glyn Williams, who was a traditional sort of stone carver and bronze caster as a fine art sculptor. And that, on the open day when I went, oh, way back when, when I guess when I was 19, that was what caught my imagination. That's what I wanted to do. Is that right? Based on that open day, you didn't, yeah. you knew you wanted to study some sort of art, but yeah, you didn't I, necessarily know it was sculpture? No, exactly. I always wanted to be a painter. I thought I always wanted to be a painter because when I was at school, you know, primary school and secondary school, Painting's pretty much all you ever got to do. You didn't right. get to carve stone and you didn't get to model clay. Oh, of course. Yeah. You didn't get to cast in bronze, all the rest of it. Um, so what, what I decided, I think, at about 16 was that I wanted to go to art school. But obviously I didn't know if I wanted to study uh, painting or sculpture or photography or 3D design or costume design or set design. So I went and did a year's foundation course, which is what most students in the UK would do before they go on and specialise in their chosen art subject. Um, I did that at Cheltenham, I spent a year and you do three weeks of sculpture, painting, photography, as I said, and I just felt very comfortable using power tools, chisels, yeah. working in three dimensions, I still loved to paint, I still loved colour, um, so I guess at the end of that year I decided no, I should really specialise, I should go and look for another course in sculpture. 
But Wimbledon had got this great reputation under Glyn Williams for traditional techniques, bronze casting, figurative sculpting, uh, anatomical studies. That's what I wanted to do. I wasn't, at 19 years old, so interested in concept. So conceptual art, abstract art, really wasn't that much of an interest to me at that age. I just wanted to learn techniques. Um, and Wimbledon had this stone carving opportunities. They had a small bronze foundry beautiful college i remember the open day going it was actually i went in and had a sneak at the painting studios and there was this smell of french cooking that i will never forget and i thought this is where i'm coming and it was a beautiful september's day the whitewashed windows the sun was coming through it was sort of completely romantic view of this art school that i got into and went to the year later and did it and did it turn out to be as amazing as that one no. day right. <laughs> not at all unfortunately uh so Glyn Williams had left the year before oh, I went. Oh no! He'd he'd been poached by the Royal Academy and, or sorry, the Royal College, and he he'd actually taken a lot of the other tutors with him. So consequently, the course had become very conceptualised, a right. lot less about making stuff. The bronze foundry was pretty much obsolete by this point. Um, I stuck at it for, I think, a term and a half. And in that term and a half, I'd seen my tutor once for 10 minutes uh, for this critique. And at the end of that first term, we had this class critique of the work that we'd done. And I'd spent, you know, my whole time, every day, I was going into college religiously, working in the carpentry workshops, making this. It was an abstract sort of um, piece of anatomy. It was like an abstract ribcage, something that I was, you know, really proud of for my first term's work. And they spent more time talking about my mate's Barbie doll head, head that he'd ripped off the body of the Barbie doll literally the morning before and nailed it to the wall. We spent about an hour and a half discussing that and sort of 10 minutes discussing what I'd done. Oh, no. So, oh, God, this is, like, this is just not for me. I want it to be apart, learning something. Yeah. Um, but this college had got another side to it. It had got a technical arts side which I hadn't known about when I'd looked at the prospectus before I'd applied. Had I done, I would have probably chosen one of these technical arts courses. And I was very fortunate to be able to switch course. I went to see the uh, tutor on the other side and said, you know, hey, I'm not really happy in what we're learning. Um, I'd like to come around and see what you guys do. And I went into one of the third-year studios, and there are 15 students with two life models, and they're learning how to sculpt academically, from the life model with sets of calipers and I thought that's exactly what I want to do I want to learn that traditional right so this was actually at the same school yeah exactly it was just on the other side of the campus right Um, okay so that's what I did so you got in there okay cool I thought here I was I I was thinking you were about to tell me that you dropped out after a month and a half no I knew I I very very nearly did yeah if I hadn't switched courses I would have done that but I switched courses and I just fell in love with the place. Ah, cool. So there's where you found your your place. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. To the point in my third year, I was so in love with doing these kind of anatomy sculptures that I would go in at seven o'clock in the morning while the cleaners were there and I'd start work and I'd be the last person out at night. And I, yeah, I just absolutely loved it. Is is this a really obvious thing to say that um, you're still doing that to this day? Yeah. And... It seems so rare to find someone who studies something and loves it and does continue to pursue it for such a period of time, at least another 10, 15 years. Yeah. I, I feel like that's a rare thing. Yeah. Um, something, I mean, somehow the, the, the 
things happened for you there that made you find your your passion your your thing at such a young age right yeah and i think a lot of that was because i had great tutors who right. really engaged i clicked with them they could see that i was passionate at what i did um also my peers in the years above me they were sort of concentrated on going into careers in the film industry which as a kid growing up in gloucestershire in the west country of england i probably went to the cinema twice up until the age of about 16 yep. when i moved to london a little bit later on and yeah that sort of you know started to creep into my everyday life but mates of mine in the years above me were focused on career careers in the film industry they wanted to get into special effects something that had never sort of occurred to me as a link to the creative industries it's like oh yeah you could actually do something like that yeah so being in london you know around the m25 there are multiple film studios so i'd go and i'd get work experience on different films in the summer vacations that kind of thing and oh, that's where it sort of slowly started to creep in that i could actually continue a career in the creative industries and get paid for it um and be open to all these different other forms of artworks, costume design, set yep. design, creature sculpting. Yeah, it wasn't something that really interested me, but I just saw that as a way of sort of continuing my apprenticeship because yep. that's what I regarded it as. Up until identifying this film industry opportunity, you really had no idea how you would pursue a career in sculpture, though? No, exactly. Yep. You know, you go to art school, you tell your parents, hey, you know, can you support me for three years while I study art? Um my parents were fantastic I mean, yeah yep. absolutely but i'm sure in the background they were thinking how's he ever going to earn a living and yep. raise a family and do all that you know do all yep. the normal things how's he going to get regular job so yeah falling into the film industry which is what i felt i did your peers obviously helped a lot with that though right yeah absolutely. They those peers yeah. who really wanted to get into it you were yeah. kind of ignoring them at first and then you realize hey there's, there's something cool yeah here. um and that there is i think for me a very distinct difference between the film industry and the way it was sort of structured or the people that went into it in the UK were generally all sort of art school educated. Mm -hmm. um, and I felt that it's quite different here, maybe because there aren't as many art schools. I can't really put my finger on it, but I definitely noticed a difference when I started at Weta and we were, were sort of required to do creature designs and things. Yeah. Uh, it was more a case here where people would reach for or they'd look at sort of what had gone before it in the film world and film designs than classical stuff. Okay. Um, and in the UK, it was, yeah, it was definitely more, oh, let's, gra let's grab a book on, you know, classical art, Renaissance art and take inspiration from there. So that that was something that really kind of connected me back to art school and I, I it's a little bit confusing what I'm trying to say I guess but I feel like I lost that a little bit when I came to New Zealand I lost that connection to fine arts yep. a bit more does that play on your mind now or are you doing things to try to make that connection again uh no because I, I, I guess in the last sort of five or six years that I've been an artist in my own right i feel like i've definitely got that fantastic again. fantastic but now it's it's weird because it's gone full circle it's almost back to the conceptual back to abstract art uh -huh. and definitely much less about figure yeah hardly at all about figurative art yeah uh, a lot less about traditional techniques because i'm using contemporary sort of technologies i'm curious about that trip 
that big trip, that life-changing trip, where you decided to leave London and head to New Zealand. Yeah. Um, were you at a good place work-wise and, and sort of creativity-wise? No. <laughs> no? Okay. No, I, I was in a rubbish place, sort of everything-wise, really. Right. I, I'd been working for the film industry for 10 years in the UK. Right. Um, and I was tired of it. I was, right. yeah, I, I wanted to get out at that point. I'd worked on about six films consecutively for Warner Brothers and they were pretty much all, you know, swords and sandals films, loads of blood, loads of gore, going into the studio every day, sculpting dead bodies, you know, sword wounds, axe wounds, whatever, cut throats. The studio would be completely covered floor to ceiling with forensic evidence photographs that oh, you'd wow. use for reference and oh, you know gruesome. yeah you get sort of desensitized to it after a while but i just thought no this isn't this isn't getting my creative juices flowing anymore yeah yeah yeah. you identified I, that yeah i wanted to do something else um i'd had a relationship breakup with right. quite a long time and i just thought i want to do something completely different and where better to do it on the other side of the world absolutely uh i knew about huh. weta obviously because okay. you know this is a few years after lord of the rings had come out yep um, I was able to get some contacts here through other contacts in the film industry in the UK. So I'd phoned Richard Taylor. Uh, I got a meeting with the workshop supervisor, Gino Asfido, the I think it was the day after I landed. And they sort of pre-warned me that there was no work at the, at the time. But they saw my portfolio. They talked to me. Weirdly, I knew two guys in the mold shop and the animatronics department right. who I'd worked with for 10, 15 years right. in the film industry in the UK. Right. And they were here. Oh, one of them was a really good college mate who I'd completely lost Kidding touch me. with. Right. So they ended up offering me a job there and then. Yep. It was in the uh, mold making department, yep. which is not a department that I would normally have worked in. Yep. But it was the only job going. Yeah. How'd you feel about that? Because you just left the film industry because you were kind of over it in some ways. Yep. And then here's an opportunity in the film industry doing mold making that you weren't yeah. that keen on. Were you desperate or you thought, hey, this could actually be the same but so different that I'll take well, it? I, no, I, I knew that I wanted to take a year out either way. I just wanted to do a year of something different. Yep. And right. wet is incredible. I, you know, Did you know I, that at the time? Uh, I knew it was a pretty special place. But cool. actually walking around the facility, it was like nothing else that I'd seen in the uk is that right yeah definitely right. yeah it was you know their studio spaces were amazing and a lot of people under one roof and i just thought this is great i want to do this and cool. I, I you know i wasn't really in the right sort of headspace to take on a big life challenge or anything i guess it just suited me at yeah, the time to do that yeah um so i worked in the mold shop molding all these lancaster bombers for um damp the remake of dam busters which yep. i think never got i'm pretty sure there are 12 lancaster bombers in fiberglass sitting on some airfield out in the wire wrapper yeah, somewhere I've heard about those. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah after five months of that i just said to richard i'm gonna go away <laughs> yeah. and if i come back i'd really like a job in the sculpting department because that's what i do cool. um otherwise i think you know i've probably had enough uh so i went to fiji for two weeks came back um and true to his word, he put me in the um, put me in the sculpting department, right. which was exactly what I wanted to do. And I guess it was only a year, eighteen months after that, that I became head of that department. So right. I was head of the sculpting department yep. for the remainder of my time at Weta. And you were you were yeah. sculpting uh, weapons, um, everything, models, weapons, costume, creature design. Uh, public art pieces 
all sorts really yeah um but towards the end of my time there i was doing less and less work physical work for weta i was still supervising that department but i was working on my own stuff right this is cool so yeah. working on your own stuff so here's the thing with this is that coincidentally 13th of february yeah which is only a few days away yeah. is the 10 year anniversary of solace in the wind yeah and Anyone who lives in Wellington or anyone who's been in Wellington, almost anyone who's seen photos of Wellington will be super familiar with this iconic sculpture that sits on the Wellington waterfront. And you're responsible for that. Yeah. Which is awesome, right? Yeah. And, and, and I, I didn't realize that it was a 10 year anniversary, but that's actually a really, really cool coincidence. I love this. So at some stage, whilst you're working at Weta, but your, work is, your workload is kind of getting less and less, you're now working on your own stuff on the side. Somehow yeah. you found time to do that at Weta, because I know a lot of people yeah. at Weta who get completely smashed and barely have time to live, let alone do their own stuff. Yeah, so that's, that's right, awesome, yeah. right? You managed to yeah. do that. So what, you had had some space, you had a garage, you had access to the tools at work, and you would actually just yeah. craft your own things on the side? Is that what you were doing? Yeah, so I, so the story with Solace was that at the I'd, I'd moved here in April 2006, and I'd worked for Weta continuously up to that point. Um, at the Christmas vacation... Everybody else went away to see their families do what everybody does at Christmas. I hadn't got any family here. Yeah. I was kind of at a bit of a loose end. I was My visa was coming towards uh, an end. So I was going back to the UK on the 6th of April 2007. Right. right. Um, and I'd got this kind of thing that it, whenever I'd gone away on location for a film to all these different countries in the world... I'd always try to buy a piece of art to take back home as a souvenir as my time in that country. Because I'd been working constantly for Weta up until that point, I hadn't seen anything of the country. Oh, I hadn't yeah, found any okay. art that I wanted There's to buy. The... I hadn't found anything that I wanted to take home. So I thought I should just do something for myself, make my own reminder of this beautiful country that had meant so much to me um, and this particular spot on Wellington Waterfront where I'd been and I I used to sit there, you know, kind of three evenings out of seven eating fish and chips, do it, just doing whatever. I loved that particular spot. So I thought I should do a sculpture that is, and I call it sort of an emotional portrait of myself at that point in my life for that particular spot. So I sculpted this sort of 50 centimetre high maquette, which, uh, you know, it comes from the French term. It's like a sculptor's sketch model, right? Yep. So I sculpted that over the Christmas holiday while everybody else was away. Richard Taylor had given me access to the workshop so I, I could come into the sculpting studio every day and I, I did that for a couple of weeks over Christmas. When people started to trickle back after Christmas, I can't remember who it was who said to me, oh, you should see if Wellington Sculpture Trust would commission that as a full-size piece for the place where you had intended it. Right. So I went to the Sculpture Trust with the model, with a written proposal and sort of Photoshop concepts of what the full-size piece might look like on the waterfront. Um, they sat on it for a while and kind of called me back in and said, look, everybody in the office really likes the idea. They like the piece of work, but it's just not the way it's done. We can't commission an artist. You know, you can't just kind of rock up here with an idea and say, hey, can you guys pay for this? Right. We have to put you know, we've got a kitty of money. We have to identify a site for a sculpture. We have to invite expressions of interest from all sorts of artists and whittle it down. And so it's not the way things are done. It doesn't follow protocol. But why don't you go and approach the council directly and see if they would fund it? 
So I thought, yeah, okay, that might work. But I was thinking, yeah, but surely the council have the sculpture trust in place to make these kind of decisions for them. I think I would stand a lot better chance if I went to the council directly and said, could I put this here if I pay for everything myself? So yeah. I, I used everything that I had saved up until that point. Um, five months later, when the council came back and said, yes, you can do that to produce this sculpture. So I'd gone back to the UK. My visa had expired. Right. Um, while I was waiting for a sort of three-year extension to that visa, I was actually living in Barcelona doing another series of sculptures, which actually ended up on the waterfront for a period after Solace was unveiled. Came back to New Zealand. Well, I, was, I remember going out for lunch in a square in Barcelona with my laptop, checked my emails, had an email from Wellington City Council and Wellington Waterfront giving me the green light to produce this sculpture. So, How did that feel? That was amazing. But I was like, in, I was in Barcelona having a great time thinking, okay, now I've got to get on the plane <laughs> and find my way back to New Zealand yeah. and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So, yeah. Had, had you actually expected that to be the outcome? Or um, you expected the opposite or you had no idea? I think I don't really think I'd had any idea by that point. Mm, um, I thought it was a bit of a long shot because where I wanted to place it, right on the edge of the waterfront, I thought that was probably a health and safety risk because people would, you know, want to go and have a look and maybe fall in. But no, they gave me the green light, came back, started sculpting the full size piece. Uh I guess it was in the October. Um and then yeah, unveiled ten years ago next week. Yeah. Um, and looking at it now, I pretty much owe my whole career to that sculpture. And I had said to the council that I will pay for, um, the production of it, the installation, the public liability insurance, the maintenance. So you, you'd offered to pay for the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. That was basically the, the deal that I came up with, with Wellington Waterfront and pay for the sculpture, the construction of it, the installation, public liability insurance, uh, maintenance, everything, on the condition that I could install it there for a 12-month period and then deinstall it. I see. And my idea was that I it would just be a cool thing to do because it would be a piece of public art that I would be able to say that I had on the waterfront. Yeah, um, I get it. It would bring me to the attention of other people, hopefully. And, yeah, there was always in the back of my mind there's a possibility that, you know, the council might decide to keep it. Um, and sure enough... They did. They did. Yeah, I think they made an offer to buy it sort of four months in, something like that. Um, yeah, I guess it was about six months, and they actually bought it. Yeah. So it's been. There so you did. Since. You did. Yeah. You did take on all those costs yourself. Yeah. And then six months later, they said, "We want to buy this off you." Yeah. Did they cover yeah, exactly. all those costs? Did, did the purchase price cover all the costs? Yeah. They. So, the original um, offer to the sculpture trust was. $28,000 for the piece. In a way, thank God they didn't accept it because I would have been seriously out of pocket uh -huh, it cost uh, more than because that, right? the casting cost alone was more than that, let right. alone all the molding costs and you know labor costs for me, installation costs, everything else. Yeah. Um, I had offered it to the council for 80,000. They, they offered me 40,000. I said, no way that doesn't cover my, cover my costs they ended up buying it for 60 but i said i will i'll let you have it for 60 if you let me have another piece on the waterfront for 
another 12 uh-huh. months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, um, which, which they agreed to. Great. So they bought the piece. I created uh, the next work, which was a piece that I'd sculpted in Barcelona, which yeah. I kind of viewed as the sister piece to, or the brother piece to Solace in the Wind, a piece that I titled Reflection. It was a crouching figure. Now, I was three months into the production of that work. I'd sculpted it. I'd sent it away to the foundry. So I was already in this for like 15 grand. And Wellington Ward Front called me up and said, oh, actually, we've, you know, we've had a board meeting. We've decided that we don't want to take a second piece from you. Uh, our concern is that you're getting a monopoly on the waterfront. <laughs> right. And if we did want another piece, it would have to be something more Pacifica. So basically I said to them, hey, you can't do that to me. I've, you know, we've got an agreement. It, nothing was written down, of course. It was all verbal. Uh, so they ended up giving me permission to install that piece for three months. Right. I'd left it there for six months until the point they said, you need to come and deinstall it. Otherwise we will remove it ourselves. Um, I offered it to them for free at mm-hmm. that point because, you know, Solace was doing really well. It had done a lot for my career. Um, that was when they declined. They said, no, we, you're getting a monopoly and okay. all the rest of it. Um, where is that piece now? That piece, I think ended up with a collector in Australia, the first edition. Um, but I have made, so I, I usually make seven editions. Oh, right. So what about um, that original solace that you created in that weather workshop over the Christmas period? That so, original piece? Uh, that is the one that is now on the waterfront. Oh, right. That yeah. is it. Yeah. Right. right. So that that was cast in Palmerston North um, by a foundry up there. But the original clay sculpture yep. is destroyed. Gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Right. And so anytime you make a piece, you'll do seven. Yes, and so this yeah. this one piece that um, you had on the waterfront for six months that went to an Australia Australian collector. Yeah, had, there's another six of those around somewhere. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Munich, London wow. replicas, um, same size, same yeah, scale. Exactly, yeah, exactly yeah, right. The same. And it's the same yeah. with Solace. Are, are there six more of those? Uh, there are five more of those. Right. I've still got one remaining full size piece. You've if got anyone one. Wants it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've got one because there's there's yeah. one on the hills. Golf course, one on the hills golf course. Down in there is one six stories up on the edge of a building in Munich. Wow. Uh, there's one in the outback in Australia. You made a point where you reckon that this one sculpture has been one of the most critical things for your career. Yeah. And yeah. really, you know, it's if it was by design, I'd think, Haha, aren't I clever? I put that there and, you know, it brought me to the attention of all these other people. But it wasn't really. I just wanted to do that for myself. And by chance, Sir Michael Hill... When he was receiving his knighthood in Wellington, he was walking around the waterfront with his family. Let's say that was on the Monday. On the Tuesday, he came to see me at Weta Workshop. Right. Richard Taylor's PA called me. She said, are you in the studio today? Michael Hill and his family are coming in in a couple of hours. They'd like to meet you. I'm like, who's Michael Hill? I hadn't grown up with Michael Hill being on TV, so I had no, no idea, idea who he was. Guy was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was like, uh, you need to go and Google Michael Hill. So, <laughs> I'm one of the sure. richest men in the country. Yeah. <laughs> so I went up to the conference room. I met him and his family. He said he'd seen this piece on the waterfront. Uh, he would like to buy an edition. He would. He had also seen the other piece that I'd got down on Chafer's Dock, the reflection piece. Yeah. Um, so he made he made an offer to buy both pieces. Um, he invited me down to the Hills Golf Club um, that following weekend, which just happened to be Easter, so it was a long weekend. We were able to go down because he wanted me to choose a site for the sculptures. While we were down there on the Sunday over breakfast, he said, what we've actually decided to do as a family is ask you to, well, we'd like to commission a piece um, 
you can come up with an idea. Uh, and two years later, we installed the five Clydesdale horses that I made for him. Right. And that was a long process, you know. Well, I've, oh, I forget how many different designs of sculptures that I wanted to do for him. Um, and he phoned me. So if that was at the Easter when we went down, it was the Christmas when I was back in the UK. Michael phoned me from Beijing and said, I've just seen this sculpture. Um, it's an installation of 110 wolves, which he now owns for the yes. golf course. Yes, I've seen the photo he of said, that, yeah. I really want you to do 60 horses for me. Right. I was like, you want me to do 60 horses? Kidding? I think that might be too much. But yeah. A, yeah, anyway. So a down, year beyond that was was when we installed the horses. So down there on his course, you've got, there's a solace, and there's then there's solace. also these five. Five Clydesdale horses. horses, and there is reflection. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. How um, well, And he didn't buy solace or reflection until quite a long time after the horses were installed. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, without him seeing Solace on the waterfront, I would have never got that commission. Yep. Uh, without that commission, I wouldn't have had the sort of little bit of financial freedom after they were installed to go, okay, this seems to be working out as a career mm. path. I'm going to take some time and focus on this. Okay. And so that's what completely. happened, right? So yep. we're, we're now like two-ish years down yep. the track yep. and you've basically said, I can see this, I can see an opportunity. I can see something else working for me here. Were you still enjoying what you were doing at Weta? You yeah, really no doubt. Know? Well, I, I had when I came back from the UK. So this is going back oh, yeah. now. Before I made Solace in the Wind, I, I obviously had to, you know, get Richard's approval to use the workshop to do my own work. Yeah. And he was he was mad into it. He was like, "Yeah, this is wow. fantastic. It will give inspiration to other people to wow. do their own thing." Um, he's a huge supporter of the arts. He's been a massive patron to me. He owns virtually one of everything that I've ever made. Right. And that was part of the agreement that okay. I had with him. He said, you can use the workshops um, in lieu of the first edition of everything that you produce under this roof. Right. You get to use the workshop space. You get to use my technicians, the materials, and I will cover the molding costs. You cover everything else. So that's, you know, what a great opportunity. Absolutely in one of the best sort of artist studios in the world with all that machinery, all those technicians to pick the brains of, um, get advice from material research, all of that kind of thing. It was brilliant. Yeah. Um, it just got to a point where I was running out of space there. Uh -huh. Um, and because I'd moved into this new series of works, the light works and paintings, yep. which were all unique. So, you know, the agreement that I had with Richard where by he owned the first edition of everything, didn't really work out because I was only producing, producing one. one. Right. So I felt like I was taking it a little bit. Um, so yeah, three years ago was when I thought, oh, you know what, I should, oh, yeah, I should probably go this on my own. Find your own space. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, and so I missed that bit there. So when you came back from Barcelona, were you then employed by Witter again or were you actually? Uh, yes. Well, I, I did Solace in the Wind. Yeah. Um, and then when that was finished, uh, I went back onto sort of Witter contracts. So gotcha. I did more film. Yeah. Uh, then I think the next thing was the, the Michael Hill commission. Yeah. Richard was happy for me to do that in the workshop. Yep. Uh, so I took some months off. I did bits and pieces there. Uh, those horses that I sculpted, I sculpted small versions, which were digitally scanned at Weta. Uh, then I went to the foundry that Weta use in China. Uh, and there is, they also have a sculpting studio there and they have scanning technology, CNC milling. Um, so I used those guys to create the full-size horses. So I actually went to China. I did about a month's work on a wetter contract in China, 
Um, and then when that had finished, I stayed on to do the horses for Michael right. Hill. So you're kind of actually making you're making these these weather contracts and this work in the yep. film industry work around your other sculpting that you're doing outside of it, or vice yep. versa. Yeah, probably, yeah, probably exactly. hard work, but you were which, making it work. Yeah, which you know it was a, an opportunity that I was never going to turn down, um, and it was great. But I f I kind of got to the point where I felt like the consistency in my own work was sort of lacking because. I do one piece for myself, then I go off and I do, you know, a couple of months or whatever for wetter. I might get to work at weekends or in the evenings on my own stuff, but there was no real sort of rhythm to the work. And I'd slowly start building up this collection of sculptures. And there wasn't really any, well, yeah, I'll use the word again. There wasn't any consistency to the pieces because in between times, sort of stylistically, conceptually, your ideas were changing. So as a body of work, they didn't really relate to yeah, each other. Yeah, it was just jumping, was it? Yeah, and piece I felt like piece. I really needed to spend just a consistent amount of time doing my own thing and getting into that rhythm, mm. um, which is when I, I guess I made the decision that when I, when I could, that is what I would do. Yeah, the contract, I would contracts, yeah. A contract ends or something, yeah. move out of that space, find your own space and say, this is me full time now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So About three years ago, you say? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've had this space for three years, but before that, I would say for the last three years that I was at Weta, I was working proportionately more time on my own stuff than I was for Weta contracts. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And so now, you, yeah, now you're full time on your own stuff. Yeah. And ultimately, how's it going for you? Uh, it's been great. I mean, it has just been the sort of trajectory has just been up. Up and up. Since, yeah, yeah. I mean, while I was at Weta, but it kept going and going and going. Um, and I guess, you know, the more exhibitions you do, the more public awareness that you build, the more sort of you grow your collectorship, um, it, it just gets better and better. Right. So those exhibitions, because you've done a few of those over the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, are they initiated by yourself? Are they things where you've said, hey, I need to do this to get my name and work out there? Um, I was definitely looking for that opportunity and purely by chance, um, my wife, Amy, her best friend in Auckland was really good friends with my old manager. Um, I'd never met her before. We were there at, I don't know, we were having coffee at Joy and John's house, and I met Julia and her husband, Clint. And I got chatting to Clint, and he was telling me that they had just come back from 14 years living in Tokyo, where they ran an art business. So they came up with this idea of hosting uh, sort of private residence shows. So they would go to people with these amazing apartments in Tokyo, they would strip out all the furniture, redress their apartments as sort of like gallery spaces, but with furniture and everything, and host these really amazing parties for friends of the person that owned that amazing uh -huh. apartment. So you know by the nature of kind of connections that those people are going to be sort of, you know, wealthy enough to afford the art that they were displaying. And she tells me that I think on average they were selling sort of 75% of the artwork in one night right? and they were doing wow. these really high-end parties um and they'd come back to live in auckland after the big earthquake um and they wanted to do something similar in new zealand but you know they were looking for different opportunities so i showed them some of my work um julia had great contacts with westpac bank she was doing different sort of private contracts for them organizing events 
Now, this was at a time when Westpac had just dropped sponsorship of the Red Collection, sponsorship of uh, Fashion Week. Right. And they were looking for something else to host their kind of top-tier clients for a night of you know, cocktails and something creative. So we pitched to them the idea of doing like a private for Westpac clients only exhibition of my work. Um, and it was only supposed to be something pretty small scale. She gave this presentation. I wasn't there for it. Uh, Westpac must have loved the presentation, yeah, loved the sure. idea, said, okay, this is perfect timing. Why don't we make this the new thing that we do an annual sponsorship of? Um, so this is back in 2015. Uh, and that was in the October. Um, so that was this huge opportunity to get in front of 250 clients on the first night, about 150 the second night, and then the third night that it ran for was were all sort of my contacts. Uh-huh. Um, and that was, yeah, that was amazing. And this, was, is, this is all your work? All my work. It was, so, it was yep. the top floor of their main headquarters in Britomar in Auckland, uh, we hired an interior designer. We hired kind of you know, movers to install the work. It was a it was a big deal. And did you have the work for work. this, or did you have to produce a few th- few extra um, things? I w- th- this is just at the time when I had started paintings and started making my light works. So I'd made ten light works. Clint and Julia, uh, my managers, had had never seen this work, so they came down to came down to Wellington, looked at this work. They loved it. Um, but, you know, that was a gamble for me to put this work out there because if anybody knew my name at all, they would have known it for Solace in the Wind and maybe the horses at Michael Yeah, Hills. sure, sure. And then they were going to come and look at something completely different. Uh-huh. Like how do these two bodies of work connect? But the way we decided to sort of structure that exhibition was pe- it was almost like a, you took people on a journey, a chrono- chronological journey of my work. They'd come in, they'd see a big printout of Solace so they'd understand who, you know, who this person was. Then they'd see the horses at Michael Hills. And then they'd slowly come through to more recent works, finishing in the big room with my more recent works. I had 10 light works, um, a bunch of new sculpture. Each night I would get up and I'd give a sort of 10, 15 minute talk on the journey of my work so this interview in brief in minutes. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah yeah and it, it was oh, it was so good it was amazing yeah was because it just, you know it gave me it gave me direct contact to these people and i realized that actually being able to stand there and talk to them and describe your work and explain it and giving them that sort of first contact was really good it was a uh, it was something that, you know, I've definitely tried to continue a lot, yeah. which is why clients like coming to the studio, I guess, to see where it's worked. Whenever I've had an exhibition, I always try to be there at some point during the day or definitely you know, for the Make evening. Great, connection personally. Um, yeah, because, you know, it's cool. I, I like talking about my work and I like listening to what people have to say yeah. about it. How many pieces did you sell at that initial exhibition? All, uh, all of them. No, yeah, no I, over the three nights, I sold all of the light works and paintings that were on exhibition, um, and I think I sold out of most of the sculptures as well. Fantastic! Yeah, it was unbelievable. Yeah, yeah how do you feel about selling an item? Is it a little piece of you that, that's kind of disappearing from your life, or are you actually um, the opposite? Um, you quite like getting rid of it because you can make something more. Yeah, some works definitely a little bit. So, uh, I'd quite like to have kept that. Uh-huh. There was one work um, I told you about the the, the addition of Solace in the Wind that stands six stories up in Munich yeah. on the edge of a floor. So they were a couple of German collectors that came to my apartment in Brooklyn years and years ago. Um, and I sold them a painting 
and to this day i'm kind of like oh i sort of wish i hadn't sold oh, that no. because it was it was completely unique and i loved it and it was the first one in a series but it went to a good home uh-huh. um but no most of the other stuff it's it's a little bit funny it's like setting setting a kid free that's right it's children, right? school <laughs> yeah um but no i mean you know you sell something it means there's a bit more money in the bank to be able to put back into new works and it makes frees up some storage space exactly that you know that's but you know if, yeah. if people didn't buy the work i wouldn't be able to continue imagine doing that work, right yeah you'd, you'd stagnate right i think yeah. that's also really important is that it does it keeps things fresh as well and it forces you to to, to keep creating yeah absolutely, which means yeah. that you're, you're, you're going to move forward yeah and whenever you're working on a piece you know midway through that piece you're probably starting to get ideas of how you could make the next one different or make the make the next one better and is that how you work um do you yeah. are, are you pretty focused on completing something or have you got a lot of things on the go at one time stopping something to move on to something else um oh it varies uh, right. most of the time of there's quite a lot going on at any one time and actually finding the time to sit down and focus on one thing can be difficult i've just finished a work uh which involves 7,000 Swarovski crystals. Now, that work has been on the go for two years, I think. Wow. Um, I started it, had one particular idea of how that could be constructed, spent months and months on it. That failed. The next one failed. So I shelved it for a while, and it's just been sitting there, and you look at it, and you learn different things on the way. And then I I found the right materials. I found a new way of doing that work. So I was, right, I'm going to get into this. But then actually being able to sit there and stick 7,000 crystals on a sheet of glass <laughs> takes a long time. Yep. And it would take a long time if you, if that was just consistent. But when that's broken up between, you know, other stuff, going to London yep. right in the middle of that, I had to find time to do that. Then you have to deal with uh, um, suppliers. Waroski were not easy to deal with. I have right. to say, getting the crystals from Austria sent here, massive. Um... Yeah, I've seen that crystal piece that you're speaking of, and it, it is massive. Yeah, I don't know if that's going to show up in the images or video or not, but it's bigger than I imagined it would ever yeah. be. Um, you were speaking of how tough it was to get those crystals. I think there's there's two really cool lessons there, though, right? Um, one, it's nice to hear that you can have a few because as a person who has a lot of projects and likes juggling a lot of things mm. it's nice to know that i'm not alone and there's other people <laughs> who are doing that and doing it well yeah so or succeeding doing that but also you talked about how you that mammoth task of planting those crystals in there was kind of got broken down yeah and i always like to think about take a big thing and actually break it down into smaller chunks yeah and it becomes a lot more achievable yeah and we, maybe that was forced on you by all those other things you talked about yeah it but it was, probably helped yeah. to get through it right yeah, I, you know what, I, I found the whole process quite sort of therapeutic because normally, you know, I'm, I've got big machines going, there's a lot of noise, I'm busy doing other things, but to be able to actually just sit down and just almost switch your mind off and just be able to place one crystal, glue it, put another one, turn BBC Radio 4 on, yeah. listen to Desert Island yeah. Discs. Nice. It was lovely. And yeah, I just divided it up. I got the masking tape, I split the canvas up, if you like, into pie sections yep. and then thought, okay, I can probably do this bit in an hour then i can go away have a cup of tea come back yeah and i really liked it yeah yeah that's great it's yeah. breaking it up into smaller chunks yeah and exactly, also yeah. yeah a little bit of a little bit of meditative time actually doing that rather than yeah all the other big crazy things you're doing big industry things you're doing these lightworks are to me they're quite radically different 
they're quite radically different from your sculptures. Yeah, massively. Massively, <laughs> right? And and like you said, that that issue you had with your exhibition in Auckland, where there's how do you go from how do you show these two different pieces of work? You managed to find a way to kind of um, show those in the exhibition. How how was it? How did you come about with these light works? What what where I'm trying to get to here is sort of what inspires you, and specifically with these works that you're creating. So that all came down to Da Vinci's Divine Proportion, and a friend of mine who worked at Weta gave me a book on uh, Da Vinci's Vitruvian Man. All right, so yep. as an academic sculptor, proportion is key to everything. When you well, when when I was doing figurative work and when I was doing uh, photorealistic work for uh, the film industry or whatever it was, you had to get everything bang on. So proportion has to be a hundred percent on. Um, and then when you when you kind of start falling into doing your own works and you want to kind of play with people's perception, you can make a hand. If you want to draw somebody's attention to the hand, you could make their hand slightly bigger. Um, Michelangelo's David right? everybody knows that his hands proportionately are slightly too big his head's too big but that's because you're looking up at him and there's a certain gravitas in his hands he wants to draw your attention to that area so you can le- use these tricks um, so Jamie Beswarek who sculpted Gollum and you know all sorts he's yeah. an absolute legend he gave me this book and I was reading about it and Da Vinci's Vitruvian Man which is that illustration of the naked man with his arms outstretched inside the circle and a square yeah what he was doing there was actually solving this age-old problem of how to do that with a man with his arms outstretched. And the Greeks before him had tried that same illustration, but using the belly button as the center of man. And if you use the belly button, you'd be able to get him proportionately correct inside the circle and the square. What da Vinci did was raise him up and made the actually the top of the groin the middle of the man. Yeah. Um, and even though it's not sort of necessarily marked out in that drawing there is um there's an inscription on the bottom written by da vinci about how how man's proportions can be divided into this age-old divine proportion of one to 1.618 so if you uh, it's a little bit difficult for sort of uh, radio purposes but if you were to take the measurement from your fingertip to the first knuckle and let's say that measurement is one yep the distance from the first knuckle to the second knuckle is 1.618 times the distance from the first from the tip to the knuckle i get it then the distance from the second knuckle to your main fist knuckle is 1.618 is is that true for all humans uh the closer you comply to that Uh ratio the more inherently beautiful you're supposed to be right i get where you're going yeah yeah yeah. so this was all explained in this book that jamie had given given me um and then i remembered oh there was that program presented by john cleese way back in the 90s and i'm sure he did something on this so i went and found it on youtube and yet sure enough he's used liz hurley as an example and he's and kate moss but kate moss weirdly doesn't comply quite as closely as liz hurley and they use tom cruise who i don't necessarily think is kind of um you know he's not a typical good looking guy but his proportions fit exactly right. to that 1 to 1.618 rule because they break the face up in yeah. this program yeah right because it's not just your fingers as you've described you can do yeah. this with your face yeah your you entire face, body everything. and yeah. and also it is a universal ratio it's found in mother nature's design yeah. right so the spiral of a snail shell the um the seed placement of seeds in the head of a sunflower 
the way leaves on the stem of a flower grow, they are all divinely proportionate and create divinely proportionate patterns. And most sort of amazingly and kind of mind-blowingly to me, it's found in cosmology, the way Earth and Venus move around the sun oh, wow. in a seven-year cycle. If you, if you draw a straight line between Earth and Venus and put your, let's say, pencil on the midpoint of that line and keep it there over seven years while those two planets orbit the sun, you end up with a divinely proportionate pattern, which is exactly the same as the pattern found in snail shells, oh, a DNA kidding? spiral. Awesome. Uh, if you take a cross-section of your thigh bone, the way the fibers grow are in a divinely proportionate spiral. Uh, the engineers, for example, who did the Golden Gate Bridge in California, they used that same spiral that you see in a thigh bone, recognizing that that's one of the strongest bones in your body. They used that pattern of fibers to recreate the steel wire armor cable that holds up, holds up the Golden Gate Bridge. Right. Um, so for me, it was like, oh, this is incredible. This is like this universal, inherently beautiful algorithm that maybe I could use to create art it's been used in architecture um you know from the from the greeks upwards yeah absolutely they, they used all, all the proportions of the acropolis they're all divinely proportionate so i took that and i thought i what i'd really like to do is create this i called it a vitruvian mirror so i created a circular canvas of 1618 millimeters in diameter i gold leafed the whole thing and then i inscribed da vinci's vitruvian man divine proportions so i in this gold leaf, I scratched the uh, the circle and the square, and then I broke down the human proportion. So this gold leaf canvas just had all these sort of lines in it, which I had hoped would divide your body up. If you were to stand in front of that canvas as a sort of abstract mirror, you would see your see yourself reflected in the gold leaf. You'd be able to hold your arms outstretched and see yourself divinely proportioned. Yeah. How'd that work? But it didn't. <laughs> uh, I couldn't get the sort of right reflective quality in the gold leaf. So that that was good because that was like a happy accident that set me off on this tangent of exploring other paint technologies and different gold leaf and all this other stuff. And I, so I, I was back to painting. I was back to where I wanted to be, you know, at 16. I was yeah, using yeah, color again. Right. I'd just come from doing the Michael Hill um, installation of the horses, these big long processes using iron foundries and cast iron. And I was messing around with glitter and, you know, luminous colored paints and epoxy resins. And I was loving it. And I was doing something, again, purely for myself. And I think the guys at Weather thought I was nuts creating these. Everybody thought I was making big coffee tables because these were big <laughs> paintings that I'd have to do on a horizontal sort of turntable where I could pour epoxy resins and you know, gold size and gold leaf and all the rest of it. Um, but it was somewhere along that sort of journey of creating these first 10 paintings looking for something or some way to make these paintings more luminous to get that sort of reflective quality in it that i sort of stumbled on the idea of backlighting the paintings so because i was at weta and surrounded by all these other technicians and all these amazing brains um, I asked a few of the guys in the 3D department and electronics department if they had any ideas on how I could light these paintings. Um, and I ended up just kind of playing around really with the principle of fiber optics, bouncing light around mm. inside a clear cool. surface. So I was using sheets of clear cast acrylic. I was scratching, sandblasting, CNC milling into the surface to see how the light projected out of these scratches or cuts. Um, and again, access to CNC mills, that kind of technology, the computer programs to create the 
divinely proportionate patterns based on the planetary movements. I was able to do all of that under Weta's roof. Yep. I, you know, the guys in 3D helped me build that program to create those patterns. Um, the guys in the uh, milling department helped me mill the first sheets. Um, and then I was able to, you know, have the space, use the carpentry shop to build the frames, use the paint shop to paint the frames. And yeah, that it, basically that set me off on this path of yeah. doing these light works, which I, I loved because it was something completely new. Mm -hmm. That was which important. is difficult in the art world because you know nothing's new. Um, I realise yep. now, you know, there are lots of other people doing kind of similar things, but definitely nothing exactly the same. Um, Good. And I did research it early on because I wanted to make sure that I was doing something, you know, unique. Okay. Um, I was getting great response from the people coming through Weta, um, and then of course at my exhibition in Auckland great response because really well. yeah they response, all they yeah. all sold and yeah um yeah what are you what are your um light pieces selling for i mean they probably vary obviously but what are we talking uh, about yeah, hundreds they, thousands anywhere to be honest from sort of 20 grand up. upwards yeah, yeah. fantastic yeah. and so where are you going with these now I, have, have you have you got some other ideas in mind some other places you want to take these there are still a lot of places that i could take them um i've got lot of ideas for more works like that but i really i want to start doing something different again um you know i i definitely don't want to get stale and just keep reproducing the same kind of work i want to keep pushing kind of the technological boundaries material boundaries um i like to use modern materials i like to use yeah. 3d printing different computer programs even though i'm not computer savvy i can you know i i know a lot of people that are so if i have an idea i can go to them um yeah i've got i've got quite a lot of ideas that i'm pretty keen to start working on but um for the last three or four years it's just been consistently busy producing works to meet orders or to get mm. ready for new exhibitions yeah right so how, how does it work for you do you um uh part of this question you've answered but are, are you are you effectively producing work and then aiming to exhibit or put it out there and hoping it sells or are you are yeah. people commissioning you to create stuff for them now does that happen a bit yeah yeah that ha I, I do get asked um a lot to produce one-off works for different clients and, and you take those um, on not all of them. Yep. Um, some of them just never come to fruition. Um, some of them I choose not to take. Uh, and other ones are, yeah, too attractive to, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If yeah. It's, what are you, um, ultimately, are you looking for the money or are you looking for the opportunity to No, I'm to looking do for the opportunity, cool? yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So um, last year, a client who's building a house uh, down in Queenstown bought one of my sculptures that she'd seen on exhibition. Um, she she sent me all the architectural drawings. I went down to view the property to to choose a site for the sculpture, and just through conversation and because she'd seen the lightworks and she was interested, um, I sort of mentioned to her that I really wanted to do a lightwork that was sort of incorporated into the build of the house, so it wasn't oh, wow. necessarily uh, you know bound by the limitations of a frame, but I could do a whole ceiling space or something. Um, and she was super keen for that. Yeah. It's like she, she'd just come back from uh, uh, Mona in Tasmania and she'd seen this big outside installation by James Terrell. So she was kind of inspired by that. Um, so I, I did all these concepts for different sort of ceiling pieces. This is for an outside area. So it's completely new territory. Yeah. Um, 
And what we've ended up doing is um, designing this work for their outside chimney breast. It's a light work, but it's a, how do I explain it? It's basically five rings of color, of light. They are all hidden behind a sort of frosted layer of glass so that each ring of light, because it's offset a particular distance behind the frosted layer, gives out this sort of hazy color light. And we've matched the different color lights to different color sunsets at different times in the year in Queenstown from photographs that she's given me. <laughs> so this work consistently change, changes over a six-hour period. It goes through 25 or 30 different color cycles, but it, it's constantly changing, but just at a rate that's imperceptible to the eye. Yeah. So what it, it does is kind of give out this quite abstract, concentric ring of colored light. Um, and it changes from kind of nice sort of soft pinks and oranges and blues, which you might see, you know, at five or six o'clock in, mm. in the winter's evening. And then it goes to these really deep purples and reds towards the end of the six hour cycle. Yeah. And that just emits this big wash of color into this whole area. Wow. And I'm super, super happy with that yeah. work. And to have been given the opportunity to do that, um, you know, that took a long time to sort of R&D and get uh, one of the electronics guys I used to kind of custom control the microcontrollers. Uh, but, but this is what you love, isn't it? Yeah. It yeah, sounds to me like it, you yeah, actually love breaking, these. Yeah, breaking new ground and exploring yeah, what's possible. And putting words um, in your mouth here, but if someone come to you and said, hey, I saw one of your light works, I just want you to remake that for me, Yeah, you'd probably turn that sort of work down, would you? Uh, would you take it? I, well, if it was just remake it yep. and they were happy with that and yep. yeah, you know, that that's fine. That's yeah, okay. that's bread and butter. That's yep. that's going to allow me to then go off and explore something new that is kind of okay. production cost heavy. But it's always nice to be asked to do these different projects. Yeah. And, I know. saw the way that you, you lit up and the way you talked about yeah, yeah, no, yeah, it. I really like that. And I've wanted to do something like that for a long time and work with architects and kind of have something incorporated in a bigger scale. Great. Um, so that's that's definitely cool. I like to do commissioned works, but there's a sort of limit you don't because when you work when you're working on a commission, you're working for a client, and I guess essentially you know you're always working for a client. But most of the time, I'm just producing works that are purely driven by my own concept. Yeah. Um, there's there's no client. There's no deadline. There's yeah. nobody telling me yeah. oh it needs to be like this. It needs to fit this particular space. It's just me in the studio producing something that I think is cool. Um, so ultimately, I have to please myself. And I'm quite hard to please, I think, in terms <laughs> of... Well, I'd, I I like to produce works that are as near to perfect as I can produce. And my works aren't cheap. They're not cheap to produce, and they're not necessarily cheap to buy. And I think I owe it to the client and the collector to make that work absolutely, you know, as close to perfection as I can make it sure. in terms of the carpentry involved, the paint finish, the way the work is produced, the electronics, everything. I want to make that as good as I can get it because that's where I get my own sense of satisfaction. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, in a way it's a bit like coming to a casino every morning and kind of high stakes gambling, right? Because everything that I do or most of what I do involves expensive materials, expensive machinery. It's labor intensive. So there's a lot up front 
that you have to find before you can then go out and try and find the marriage of the artwork and the collector that's going to appreciate it and buy it. Yeah. And as you say, gamble, that's a good word. That's a big gamble. Yeah. Um, Because sometimes a work, I I did a work uh, late last year and it sold, I I put a picture on Instagram and it sold within two days from that Instagram picture, Mm -hmm. which is amazing. Yeah. Um, But then other works might sit there. You've still got some in your studio. I've, got a bunch of works in the studio that have never seen the light of day they've never been you know publicized anywhere yeah you think okay where how am i going to get these works out there because i don't have a gallery yeah um so you're relying on kind of your own sense of well what is it like your own kind of business acronym to go okay well i need to create an opportunity here to show these works or i need to do an email out to all my potential clients that might like this piece for their collection but how do you find new clients because of course if you if you're lucky enough to find one client that client may buy one work and they may come back and buy another work they may buy a sculpture if they've bought a light work or they may you know be fortunate enough to have two homes and they want the light work for each house but I'm getting to the point I think in New Zealand where it's getting tougher and tougher and tougher to find new clients mm-hmm. because even though there's a huge sort of collectorship in New Zealand, there's a great thriving art community of art collectors. It's still small. It is small, right? It's limited in size, yeah. It's not London, it's not New York, it's not You think you've reached a lot of them? If they Um, want a piece, they've got a piece. Yeah, uh, I'm sure there are plenty more people out there who I'm yet to reach, uh, but it's, I just need to broaden my horizons, and that's, you know, that's always been part of the sort of game plan is to get in, get back into London, hopefully get to America and just yeah, start broadening right. my horizons. But that requires dealers in both those countries or all over the world. And I've just got a dealer in the UK now. That's why I was back there last month setting up new works. Um, right. I've got an opportunity now to um, show a piece in LA, which is cool. Um, but it, you know, it all takes time. And, and you are heading back to London, work. is that right? You're, you're, you're leaving New Zealand now and heading overseas. Um, at some stage, I'm yep. sure we will. Yeah, yeah, because I need to, I need to branch out. And if if I want to, I'm never going to corner that market. But if I want to get my work out over there, I, I need to be there a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, but you know, whatever happens, wherever we end up, my links back to New Zealand will always be strong. I will continue getting a lot of my works made here. You know, the the frames painted. That sounds nuts. You think, why wouldn't you get your frames painted in the UK or wherever? But believe me, it was a mission going through different paint companies to try and find anybody to reach those standards your, that your I was sort levels, of expected. Yeah, you found someone, you don't leave, I, just, leave them. I just don't want to do it again. Yeah. So it's easier to ship the works. <laughs> you you sit in a really interesting place here where you've talked quite passionately about about just creating artwork. Yeah. and finding time to just create something. But then that last five, ten minutes was very much about actually trying to get out there and try to sell your work. So you're in a yeah. very interesting place where you seem to almost be wearing, I mean, as a business owner or as an artist, you need to be doing this, but you're doing it quite well, I feel, where you're actually wearing those two hats and very aware yeah. that it's not it's not good enough to just sit there and create. You actually do need to get that out there. Yeah. How, how, how comfortable are you with the business and the marketing side of things? Um, I like it actually yeah um and i don't know maybe that's part of the success of what i'm trying to do um because i do think about it constantly um i like to come up with different ideas about how to get my work out there because you know it's a 
it's a new model in some ways. I, I'm not following a traditional model in New Zealand. I don't have a gallery. Um, mm -hmm. I have had dealers, um, but I find most of it really comes down to different business models set in place by by me or you know whoever. It's about reaching new people. It's about finding opportunities. New Zealand is great for that because it's a small community. Um, you know, my my last exhibition in Wellington happened purely by chance. I'd got a body of work that I needed to show. I needed to get out there. Um, I was standing outside Prefab Cafe down on Jesse Street. Yeah. Um, the owners of the production space opposite that wrestler, uh, it was at the weekend. He was in doing some DIY work to the company wall or whatever, standing outside with his mate next to his ute. And he said, oh, hey, you're um, you're Max Pate, aren't you? I follow you on Instagram. I recognize some of your work. And we got chatting. And he said, oh, would you ever consider showing one of your works in our space? And I said, I'd consider taking over your space and having an exhibition there for definite. It's a cool space. Yeah. And it wasn't long after that that that's what we ended up doing. And Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I... I love that about New Zealand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just always kind of, you're just once removed. And, that's right. There's only yeah. one or two degrees of separation eh, exactly. between you yeah. and the person that's that's going to yeah. make this thing amazing for you. Yeah, and that's been really easy for me to get work produced here mm -hmm. because I'm definitely in a place now after 10 years of being here and knowing so many people through the film industry um, and now just through what I do by myself, if I need to get something really obscure done, you can find it. You can you pick can up the phone, someone. and usually within two phone calls, you're talking to the guy yeah. that's gonna you're gonna end up working with yeah. for the next few years. And are you still sculpting? Because I did see a couple of pieces in in your workshop um, that they may have been sitting there for some time, or, or maybe they're recent. But are you actually still doing creating I, and selling sculptures? I'm still creating three dimensional pieces sculpting, but I'm not sculpting in the sense of I'm not actually pushing push, pushing the clay around with my thumb anymore. Yeah, which I do miss. Ah, right. I haven't done it for actually for years i think um and that was my first love and it's yeah yeah it's probably it's probably long overdue that i actually went back to do something even if it's just for myself um because i do miss clay i love it yeah um but i i just allow the sort of technology to drive my ideas a bit more now and 3d printing and cnc milling and scanning and digital manipulation all of that, I just find it so exciting. You're very excited again, by yeah. those things. I can tell that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not excited about using those things myself, but I'm excited about the idea of having things produced because I am not a technological person at all. You know, I, I struggle to find the on button on my laptop. Let alone. <laughs> <laughs> um, Me too. MacBook Pros, they always move it and change it as well. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. don't they ever? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but no, it's it's good. I you know I like to produce works that are sort of of the moment and using current technologies and all that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, but there's a there's a yearning there to maybe use your hands a little bit more and just create, just sculpt something, use some clay. Yeah, yeah. Whether it's well, yeah, definitely go back to clay. I'd like to do that. I need to find the time again in my life for that. Um, but I'm just, as as long as I'm being practical, pushing a machine around, you know, digging a hole in the earth, whatever it is, I just like to that. be practical and physical and using my mind a bit and creating cool so let's come back to the 10-year anniversary of solace mm -hmm. in your workshop right now you are producing 50 or so um yeah, they're 60 centimeter tall cast iron identical so they're like a third scale replica of the one on the waterfront yeah um and you're producing them to sell them 
Yes. Are they right, sold yeah. already, or are you intending to now uh, we're, sell them? No, no, we're taking pre-orders, even though they're not available yet, yep. um, because they will become available on the 13th of February, Great. so next uh, next Tuesday on the anniversary. Um, so these have these have been in process. Um, I actually went back and looked in my email thread the other day to see when I started communicating with the foundry in Auckland, and it was actually back in April last year that I kicked this into motion. Ten months, eh? Yeah, so it's been a long time, and yeah. um, that that's one of the things with sculpting that you have to appreciate it takes a long time yeah sure. um, especially if you're having something cast in bronze or iron um so yeah so i had the original piece so the full-size piece as it now stands on the waterfront that was digitally scanned yep that scan was then digitally sort of cleaned up and um sort of perfected for any holes in the scan that kind of thing then i 3d printed it here at my studio um cleaned it up so i've now got a, a physical 3d model at 60 centimeters tall which i can then send up to the foundry in auckland they take a whole bunch of silicon molds yep. uh aluminium and composite epoxy resin it all gets very complicated yep. and technical um long and the short of it is hopefully next week early next week i will start to receive the first in the editions of these 50 pieces that i'll put out there to sale yeah yeah, fantastic. And what are you hoping they'll retail for? Have you got a price on those? Uh, they will be four thousand two hundred and fifty. Yeah. I've tried to keep it down as sort of low as low as possible because I appreciate there are a lot of people out there who hold the full size one very dear to their hearts, yeah. and I know there are lots of people out there who would like to own one. Yeah. Um, but you know the reality is there are a lot of production production costs, costs are high. Yeah. 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 Plus, it's a twelve month um, project. You want to get something out of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. But, you know, that that's great. Those are the things that hopefully we'll be able to just sort of trickle out every now and then over the next number of years. Fantastic. And, yeah. Yeah. I, I love, there's a couple of things about this I love. I mean, the idea is quite, quite cool, actually. But I love, you were showing me how the pieces of wood that you're mounting them on are actually yeah. pieces of wood from the original wharf. Yeah, that's right. So when I originally installed him 10 years ago, I love the fact that there was this old dilapidated wharf directly in front of him. And if you were brave enough or dumb enough or drunk enough, you could go out and kind of teeter on the edge Climb of this old it. sort of falling down wharf and yep. look at him from the front. And also next to him, um, until literally the day before he was installed, there was this massive red old sort of rusty fishing vessel. And I love right. the fact that Solace was almost kind of hidden by this shipping, uh, by this big boat. And people would have had to kind of go, Ah, I've never seen that sculpture before. How long has that been there? Uh -huh. I've never seen it because I've always looked at this. And it disappeared. And the day we went down to install it, the boat had gone. And I've got to say, I was really disappointed. Because you, you obviously chose yeah. the spot precisely for yeah, where exactly. the boat was. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the boat had gone. The wharf was still there. Um, I, w I actually wasn't aware that the wharf had come down until fairly recently. And I don't know when they'd taken... Um, right. Some of it is still there, yep. but the bit that's directly in front of uh, Solis has gone. Yeah. But you've um, managed to source yeah, some like, of that oh, wood. Wouldn't it be a cool idea if he was actually standing on an original piece of the wharf? So um, over a few weeks, I managed to track some down, um, went up to this cool, cool timber yard up in Upper Hut where they've just got so much stuff. And the guy said, yeah, we've got some. I know Chafer's Wharf. I know where it's stored. Let's go and we'll choose a piece. So I bought this piece of wharf uh, and they cut it down for me because it is stupidly hard timber. It's ridiculously hard and heavy um brought it back to the studio and so I've, I've cut those down into smaller plinths so each one will stand on its own unique piece of wellington wharf i love it 
I love it. And then there's a little wee fleck <laughs> yeah, of, that's of, right. yeah. of steel, yeah. of the original Solace that you've just sort of cast yeah, that's right. In yeah. some resin or something. Yeah, it's just sort of encapsulated it. in clear resin yeah, next to it. It's yeah, it's fantastic. I love those little touches. And I, you talked before about getting things perfect. I did see some of your light works, and I did look at even your wiring on the back of it is immaculate. Yeah. <laughs> and I think I think you you do think about everything almost down to the finest little detail. I, I love the way that you're actually just really considering every aspect of what you're producing here. Yeah, I, yeah, there is definitely a certain satisfaction in getting it just so. Yeah. Maybe it's just being a Virgo. Oh, right. Is that what it is? I don't know my star signs, but okay. Is that, that the perfectionist? Yeah. I think yeah. that's probably the first thing that you read about Virgo oh, is, yeah, want to be perfectionist. Uh, right, right, right. <laughs> okay. That, um, I don't know if I'll embarrass myself on a podcast here, but I think my wife is a Virgo. Uh, I actually don't know, but she's a bloody perfectionist, so it wouldn't surprise me if she is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That all makes well, sense. Well, I hope you know her birthday. If you don't know a star yeah, sign, I, do. I yeah, hope yeah, you know yeah, her birthday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, 26th August. Yeah, she's a Virgo. Ah, yeah, day after my mum, who's 25th. And, yeah. Right. Yeah, she's okay. a Virgo. All right. And, and so you've got an open day this weekend. Is that right? Next weekend? This weekend? Yeah. So I wanted to do something to kind of coincide with the anniversary of Solace. Obviously, I can't do it on the day, but that weekend, Saturday the 17th and Sunday the 18th, uh, Saturday 10 till 4, Sunday I'm doing 11 till 3, an open day at my studio. So the doors will be open if you want to come and see where it's all made and <laughs> where some of the magic happens, let's say. Yeah, pop on by. I love that. So did you hear that, Wellington? 17th, 18th of February? Yeah. Come along to 140A Park Road, Miramar? That's right, yeah. Side road opposite where the old California Garden Centre used to be. Yeah, opposite the old garden yeah. centre. Come in and check out the studio. Just an open day, open for everyone to wander through and check it out. And what, what will everyone expect to see in the studio on that day? Uh, all sorts. There'll be a mix of older works, uh, the new cast editions of solace in the wind hopefully they'll be there yeah. if the foundry put do their part um the full-size original version the fiberglass one uh some of the maquettes for michael hill's horses i'll probably have those out the new works the light works the crystal work that i've just finished uh that will be on the wall and Fantastic. Beautifully lit. Yeah. you've got to come along and see that that is amazing i'd love to dive a little bit more into business and what you're doing business but i'm very aware that this is taking way longer than it should and you've got to get back to producing things so i won't let you go there's a couple of things here though in fact, one thing, you talk a lot about um, almost a coincidence or about things happening and you're really, really fortunate that they happened. Mm. But I think I think you've made a lot of that happen and maybe you're not realizing or appreciating <laughs> maybe, how, yeah. how, you know, because you if you didn't have, if you didn't have all those years experience in the film industry, you wouldn't have got the connections here at Weta, which then wouldn't have enabled you to actually um, use that space, which, right. and without that space and all those facilities, you possibly wouldn't have been able to produce all these cool things you've been producing that's so right. you need to go you needed to go through that journey to get there absolutely and, yeah. and that that summer holidays when everyone around you buggered off and yeah. you said hey you could have just gone to the beach you could have gone on a road trip you could have done nothing but yeah. you didn't you actually produced something yeah like you created something and that one thing that you created sparked the next 10 years and yeah. this awesome journey you're going on and i think that's really important i think i think that shows um i don't know what word i'm looking for here but i think you're a hell of a lot cleverer and a hell of a lot more driven than you think you you are. Um, and, and, and yeah, there's potentially a little bit of luck here, but, you know, you make your own luck yeah, that's by making true. these decisions. That's very true, yeah. Yeah. I think it's a fascinating journey, and I know that there's so much more to go because I can see okay. your brain ticking over, you're thinking about bigger things, you're thinking about moving on to other parts of the world and how you can make this a bigger thing. And I love that you've said there'll always be a little piece of New Zealand and you as you move on but i genuinely wish you all the best for these crazy big endeavors and I, I look forward to seeing the name max pate coming at me from crazy corners of the world 
Well, thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, cool. So I appreciate it so much, Max. Thanks cool. a lot. Thank you. Hey, thanks for hanging in there. Thanks for sticking around. Thanks for listening. I could have chatted to Max for hours, for days, but unfortunately I really need to try to limit these interviews to an hour or less. Today I blew it, but I hope it was worth it for you. I think it's really awesome to appreciate the success that Max has had, but it's important to understand that he's worked hard, really hard, to create the success for himself. This isn't an overnight success, by any means. Max is still young, he's still got so much ahead of him, but he's been working in this field since, well, high school, 16, 17 years of age. He had to spend those hours learning at school. He spent years toiling away in the movie industry in London and Wellington. He built respect. He made connections. He learnt skills. He garnered opportunities. And he used them. He used those resources at his disposal to actually create something. I've said this before, and I'll probably say it again. Many of us have got day jobs. We've got nine to fives. We've got some paid work that we're doing. But that shouldn't be our limit. We've all got opportunities. We've all got a little more time. And we can pursue our passion, we can create something. Remember that summer holiday, when everyone around Max disappeared for summer? He didn't waste his hours, he crafted. Look where that took him. Upon jumping out the combi and wandering through his workshop for some photographs, we kept chatting, we kept continuing our conversation, and we had a couple of really great ones. And I'm sorry they weren't recorded, but I want to share a couple of things with you. You see, we didn't talk about pricing quite as much as I should have throughout the interview. His latest piece, his crystal artwork, it's selling for somewhere in the vicinity of $55,000. Now, how do you price something like that? How does that figure come about? And I talked to Max about this and I said, is it an observation of the market? Is that what the market will pay for art? Therefore, that's kind of where you price it. Or is it, what does it cost you? What do you actually need to make a living? Because that's the way I'd be working this out. He said it's a bit of both, really. But one of the fascinating things he does is he takes the cost very seriously. He considers every single piece that goes into his artwork, from the wood through to the acrylic, to each individual screw, to all his outsourcing, it all goes into a spreadsheet. Even his rent, even having a photographer visit to take photos, it's all a cost of producing that artwork. He said another really interesting thing. Every piece of material in his workshop has a price sticker attached to it. Everything. Every piece of wood, every stick of glue, every screw. And firstly, when he picks it up, it makes him question whether he really needs to use it, right? Is it really necessary to cut into a whole new piece of wood? But it reminds him to place that cost in a spreadsheet. He knows what these things cost him, therefore he knows what he needs to get back from them. And I wonder how many of us really know that, really know what our costs are, and really even know, at the very least, how much time we're spending on this and what that's worth. I think it'd be a super useful exercise for all of us to do. And finally, that torrid time in London, when things weren't going well, when his relationship broke up and he fled the country, moving to New Zealand, it was a rougher time than he let on. It really was the lowest point in his life. But where this gets interesting, and we didn't talk about this, any research on the Solace in the Wind sculpture will tell you the story, is that that's where Solace in the Wind came from. Solace in the Wind actually represents him, standing out on the precipice at that stage of his life, when everything is completely and utterly grim. It's him seeking solace on the waterfront in Wellington's wind. It's fascinating to think how he created something from such a horrible time in his life that had become such an important and influential part of his career. And it's a reminder to himself 
that even when times are tough, good things can come out of it. He reminds himself of this on a regular basis. Remember back to episode 8 with Rui from Critical Design? He spoke of wearing your wounds like badges. Your wounds and your cuts are the cracks which your light shines through. I liken this attitude to what Max has achieved with this. Right, every cloud has a silver lining. It doesn't feel like it at the time, but even the crappy times can result in something quite special. Hang in there. So that's today's podcast. Episode 11, Max Pate. And remember, go and leave me a five-star review on iTunes or tell me what I can do to improve this experience for you. And if you're in Wellington, I encourage you to head along to 140A Park Road this coming Saturday, Sunday, 17, 18th of Feb. Check out a studio. I'll be there on Sunday. Hope to see you there. Thanks. Thanks.